0: Good morning. Welcome to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you until noon this morning. And we've got a packed show for you starting, well, right now. At uh, 1030, we'll be talking about schools, 11 about the Supreme Court, and at 1130, the passing of John Lewis. So we've got everything covered. But off the bat here, Brenda and I thought we would talk about what's been going on all week, uh, our lives during COVID-19. You know, On Friday, we were told, hey, if you want to go out for a drink, uh, you have to get something to eat. You may have heard me talk about that on Friday. Um, so we saw these bars have $1 menus, and it was good to see people out. And Brenda, I have to say, it was so refreshing to go out to a bar and watch the Mets play. Even though the game didn't count yesterday, it was just kind of some somewhat back to normal.
1: Well, good morning, Joe. And yes, it, it does feel good to have some degree of normalcy, even if it isn't quite the way we remember it. But uh, it does make you feel like there's some hope that we'll have our, our lives back. You know, frankly, I don't think we'll ever have the same life as we did pre-COVID. When I think about, you know, mid-March, what it was like before COVID and then after COVID. It's like BC and AC here. But um, at least there's some degree of normalcy when you're sitting at a bar and and buying a dollar's worth of uh, French fries uh, so that you can enjoy yourself and and, uh, feel like, yeah, you know, I like to relax like this. I like to sit at a bar, watch a game, talk with my friends and enjoy a beverage. Uh, it gives you some hope for the future for sure
0: yeah because you know through it all and of course we have to stay safe and you're never going to hear me say don't put a mask on when you're walking through public uh but it, it, you still need that social interaction. And I talked about this a lot Friday. You need that social interaction. You've gotta have that face-to-face conversation. Something we were already missing out on before all of this because of, you know, hey, let's just text. Why, why talk? Why go meet somebody up? Um, but it, it's good to be able to meet up. But, you know, Brenda, you brought up something. Will we ever get back to the normal we knew in February? That is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And it'll be very interesting, you know, a year from now, two years from now, how this has impacted us long term.
1: Yeah, psychologically and financially and in every other way, physically for many people, too. Um, Thankfully, this is happening now, at least where we can get outside. I was talking to a friend the other day and, and we both said the same thing independently. We were talking about this. I think it would be much worse if we were stuck in the house like this or really limited in our actions uh, if it were in the dead of winter. Imagine how isolating it would be then. So I'm happy that we can at least get outside, take a walk, ride a bike, you know, hit a few golf balls, that kind of thing. Um, But it's, it's really weird, Joe, like things that you would never think about. For instance, um, my husband, Dan, and I were on a friend's boat the other day. And our friend who is a very accomplished sailor said to me, you know, we can't get into Canadian waters. We're not allowed. So even, even taking a boat ride (laughs) is different now because we've always had this wonderful opportunity to go into Canada and the proximity to Canada, you know, for a lot of people, You go over to Canada for Chinese food. You know, we're gonna gonna go to dinner, we're gonna go to another country for dinner, but that's become such a way of life for people who live in Western New York. And you're going boating perhaps, and yeah, I'm gonna go over there and and, uh, drop anchor in Canadian waters. Well, you can't do that anymore either. So what we took for granted for so long, even living next to another country uh, is so different. And and I was thinking too, you go over to the border in years past well, you know, you have your passport or your enhanced license. Uh, where are you going? How long are you going to be there? That whole thing. Many times we all know what the routine is like. Now, if we ever get back to Canada, we might have to have a, a temperature check in addition to producing our passport. So uh, I don't think things will ever be the same in that regard, Joe.
0: Yeah, you know, one of my favorite bars is actually in Canada. Uh, Mick and Angelo's on Lundy's Lane It's one of my favorite bars It's an old school place Where you can just eat peanuts and throw the shells on the floor Love places like that Um, Obviously haven't been in a few months Um, But yeah, you're right We did take that for granted Because to us, it's like Going from Buffalo to Hey, we're just going to Niagara Falls for the day To us, it's not a different country You know, We don't think about it until we don't have that access
1: That's very true Um, And, you know, if we're going to throw a a cheap plug out there. I want to talk about my friends at the Sterling Inn and uh, AG Inspired Cuisine. Uh, If we do get back over, I really have a hankering to go over and support those folks, in addition to many of the independent restaurants in this area, which I think is one of the best things about living in Buffalo and Western New York. Just the food scene, to me, has evolved tremendously over the past 10 years. And there are so many wonderful independent restaurants. Um, in Western New York. But there's also one across the border that I would recommend to folks if you're into the whole farm-to-table cuisine. um, And it's at a a unique little hotel called the Sterling Inn. Uh, It used to be an old milk factory, Joe. And when you pull up, you see this old-fashioned, gigantic uh, milk bottle, big silver bottle. And that's the hotel. I remember the first time we pulled up and said, this can't be the place. (laughs) Well, you walk in, and it is absolutely beautiful inside, very boutique-like and he has a wonderful restaurant. So I hope those folks can survive as I do the, the, you know, hundreds of businesses on this side of the border. Uh, Really difficult uh, circumstances for so many people.
0: And also people who own property In uh, on the beach, in Crystal Beach, and Fort Fort Erie, Niagara Falls. That might be something we talk about uh, on one of our upcoming shows, Brenda, is how are people coping with that? I know someone who owns property up there obviously has not been able to see it since March. I know there's a few stories like that around Buffalo, so I think that would be interesting to see how they're handling. Obviously, they can't go take care of the property. They can't go cut the grass or make sure everything's good inside. It'll be interesting how those people are keeping in touch with a property they left never knowing they were going to be gone for so long.
1: That's for sure. And conversely, there are a lot of people, a lot of Canadian residents who have property here. I know there's quite a contingent in uh, Ellicottville, for instance, where a lot of folks from Canada buy property there. Uh, So uh, it also would affect them in that way too. And uh, it's just a shame. Uh, If anything, maybe it's a little boost for the real estate market in this area because uh, I think Americans might be buying up the property the Canadians are selling now on this side of the border. So, uh, and I I know too, Patrick Kaler, who is the uh, president and CEO of Visit Buffalo Niagara, uh, has commented about the impact of tourism, how tough that's been and how, you know, those folks try to project when tourism might come back, uh, especially when the levels were so high in 2018 and 2019. And they were talking about not until 2022 or 2023. So uh, they definitely know that we're in this for the long haul. Uh, And I really hope that someday we can cross that border again, Joe, like we've been so accustomed to over the years.
0: Yeah, for sure. Another thing that happened this week, Brenda, uh, the naming rights are up for sale at uh, what was New Era Field. Right now, the stadium down the street from my apartment is how I refer to it. Uh, And we had a bid on the stadium, Tushy Bidet's wanted to uh, put their name on the stadium. Uh, County Executive Mark Poloncarz said that's not going to happen. He's he's, uh, turned that down. What do you think, Brenda? Would you be okay with a tushy bidet stadium?
1: Absolutely not. I am uh, fully on board with uh, the county executive saying, We don't need anything to bring embarrassment to the city. I mean, really, I I can't believe that. I love the news. I heard it on WBEN earlier this week, where they said that idea was flushed away. uh, And, you know, make your own joke here. There's plenty of opportunities. But, yeah, I think that uh, that would have been extremely tacky. Uh, We have, I think, for many years suffered from an inferiority complex in this community. And finally, you know, the bills are starting to uh be talked about on the national scene in a good way you know about the potential for how well this team is doing and how how well they can continue to do and perhaps even win the afc east looks like josh allen is starting to get it together we've got Stefan diggs tom brady is out of the afc east so you finally hear people talking about the buffalo bills about good things related to football i think the last thing we need is some ridiculously named stadium. So, <laughs> hey, yeah. How about you, Joe? What did you think? Well, of this is
0: where you and I disagree, Brenda. I'm all about they want to pay $12.5 million to put their name on the stadium. I'm all about the Benjamins. Bring them in. Let's go. I think part of the deal would have to be that Tushy Bidets would be in the stalls at uh, Tushy Bidet Stadium.
1: Well, that should be a given for sure.
0: <laughs> I, it, it, it was something, to, you know, it was something to have a little fun with and get your mind off of this COVID. That's what I'm right. big on right now. Let's get our minds off of reality for a second or so, and, and something you know, light like that, or the, po- the possibility that the uh, the Blue Jays could be playing in Buffalo. And by the way, the uh, the question is still out there. Do you have an office that overlooks Salem Field? If so, let me know because there's a certain series in September that I'm very interested in getting some kind of seat to.
1: Well, they would be nice,
0: Joe. Yeah, the Mets are in town, if you were wondering. (laughs) I I
1: had a feeling it had something to do with those guys wearing the blue and orange.
0: But, you know, that would be cool, even though their fans couldn't be there, just to say, hey, look, the Blue Jays are on TV, and that's Buffalo. You know, again, we wouldn't benefit much off of it because we couldn't go. However, you know, ESPN's carrying the Jays-Yankees, and look, there's one Seneca Tower. There's downtown Buffalo. There would still be some... Something cool to say, like, hey, remember 2020 when the Blue Jays played in Buffalo for 30 games?
1: Yes, you know, I'm with you. I love seeing Buffalo in those uh, in those national shots or sports shots or even when movies are filmed here. Sometimes the movie itself isn't great, but it's always fun seeing the different landmarks that we so identify with, you know, and have been a part of our lives for so long. But Joe, I'm glad you brought up the point about diversions and having something other than COVID-19 to think about and, you know, civil unrest. Um, I do wanna recommend a show that we just finished. And if folks wanna text in their ideas about uh, what shows they wanna watch or what they've been binging, I'd appreciate it because I'm looking for something new now. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm not into like dragons and sci-fi or that kind of thing. But there was a show that we found on Netflix called Rectify. And we just finished watching it last night. And I was, it was one of those shows where I only wanted to watch one hour per night because I didn't want it to end. And I was just trying to savor it from night to night. Have you heard of Rectified, Joe?
0: I have not heard of that one.
1: Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, I highly, highly recommend it. It was so well acted. It's about a guy who was wrongfully imprisoned on death row for 20 years. Uh, and it's four seasons long. So you can really immerse yourself in it and definitely recommend that show.
0: Well, I'm always looking for something new, Brenda. I'm going to have to check that one out. Another thing I I like to focus on during this is how people are adjusting. Obviously, we still have gyms closed. You may have heard me mention that once or twice on Friday. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I am glad to see 5Ks are starting back up. You know, I ran one a few weeks ago. I'm running one this Thursday. Obviously, nothing like what we're used to when you say a 5K. Uh, But it's on a course. There's a finish line. You start 30 seconds apart, uh, you know, so it's all on your chip time. There's no gun time. Uh, But it's really, it's just some sense of normalcy, getting back to that. And this morning, I saw a video from Catalyst Fitness right down the street from us here at Intercom, Brenda, and they were doing uh, workouts in the parking lot.
1: You know, I've noticed a few gyms are doing that. And why not? As I said, with the summer weather being so beautiful, although today I think it would be really tough to exercise hard. It's I took the the dog out for a walk this morning and it was really steamy even early today. Uh, So I hope if people are outside exercising, they're hydrating too and being smart about it because who wants to end up in an ER right now? But, uh, you know, I give the gyms a lot of credit for finding a way to adjust a little bit at least to uh, have that, you know, exercise ideal. Um, and and the whole idea of socializing with other people. I think when I go to the gym, I like talking to people there. I like seeing how other people work out. It's all part of the experience for me. Uh, So being able to, Kind of ad lib and do something different by being in a parking lot, I think is a wonderful, wonderful idea.
0: See, Brenda, this is why you and I hosting this show is great because we both have a lot of different opinions. I'm the complete opposite at a gym. I put my headphones in and zone out. That is my hour and a half to just zone in, kind of clear my head.
1: Well, you know, I'm working from home, Joe, and I feel a little more isolated than you do probably since you've been going into the station the whole time. That's true. I've been and- very
0: fortunate during this to not really have my routine that much interrupted.
1: Right, right. And I was talking to somebody yesterday who's retired and he said, you know, it really isn't that different for me. But for people who work and are used to being around in office with a lot of uh, activity, it's it's weird. I mean, I don't necessarily mind it because um, I've gotten used to it and there are some benefits that you find working at home that you don't working in an office setting. But I do miss the social interaction and you know certainly many of my coworkers, I miss just talking to people and seeing people. So um, when I go to the gym, I do like that aspect of it. Uh, even if I'm not chatting it up with somebody, but just being around other people who are like-minded and working out and kind of comparing notes about different ideas and techniques, uh, I do miss that.
0: Well, I do miss the socializing of everything, right? Because right now, even when you go to a bar, you can only have so many people in a restaurant. And obviously, for good reason, I'm not, you know, debating the reason. I'm just saying it's uh, you got to be able to find that socialization, because if, if we get anything positive of this, Brenda, I hope it's the fact that people, when we finally can freely go out and socialize and hang out in big groups again, people put their phones away because before all of this, you know, hey, you could be hanging out with your friends. Where where are you? Your face is buried in your phone. Now I hope people have that appreciation for face-to-face socialization and and being, physically being with people, not just through a Zoom meeting or on the phone or through a text.
1: I went to a a little dinner party yesterday. It was an afternoon. We hung out on on the back patio at a friend's house. There were uh, eight of us, it was four couples. And it was ideal because we all sat apart and we all had you know, our masks when we first arrived. And then when we sat down, we took our masks off and uh, we did, the hostess put up like a little buffet. So we all got up and got our own food and <laughs> didn't feel like we were touching each other's stuff. But it was really nice to um, just sit outdoors and have a conversation and not talk about COVID-19 for a couple of hours and be outdoors and be among other people. So um, fortunately, that's been a real plus where we can start doing things like that again. But you know what the other thing I noticed, Joe, it seemed to me, at least this was my experience, in March and April and even to some degree in May, it felt like the days were just dragging. And now all of a sudden, here we are approaching the end of July and I feel like it's just zooming by. Have you had that experience?
0: Brenda, let me tell you, it it seems like The last, I'd say the end of May to now, I mean, it was, I blinked my eyes and here we are. We are June 19th, uh, I'm sorry, July 19th. Look at it, I don't even know what month it is. July 19th, we are so close that we're talking schools now and there's no, well, maybe this, maybe that. It's, we have to make a decision because we are less than two months from when school starts. And speaking of schools, when we come back superintendent dr richard hughes from frontier will join us with all those hopefully answers to our questions about social learning uh social distance learning getting kids back into the schools and all that if you have a question you'd like us to ask the superintendent 716-803-0930 shoot us a text it's joe beamer brenda Alacy. back with you after news Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you. And as you know, this week, uh, more discussion of what will schools look like in September uh, has taken place. Also, guidelines from the state has been given to the school districts. So to join us for this segment, we have Dr. Richard Hughes to discuss that. Dr. Hughes, good morning. Good morning. Now, uh, Dr. Hughes, we've heard, you know, are students going to be learning at home like they did last year? Are they going to be back in schools? Uh, Where do we stand now? I understand you've got the guidelines. Where do we stand now if you had to make, make a call, what will schools look like this September?
2: Well, wow, um, that's, that's a crystal ball call right there. Um, we're planning for every single possibility. Um, first of all, you know, at least the governor gave us some numbers that measure whether we are going to open or not. Um, that gives us somewhat of an idea. But on the negative side, um, he's relied on the Department of Health and then SED to give us guidelines. Um my hope is we get open fully, but the reality of it is how do we social distance, you know, 20, 20, 25 kids in a classroom, um, Meet trying to meet the guidelines um, at the same time. So, you know, we're putting plans together that are the, the regular opening with all the precautions. We're looking at hybrid models where maybe part of the students are in on a given day. And then there's the online version. And, you know, I really don't want us to be the online version. Um, our kids need to be in school for multiple reasons, for their, for their well-being, their mental health, their um, learning. And then they'll side, it's, it's, it's also a parent issue. Parents, um, you know, are out of work or being able to balance those two items, uh, that's, that's, that's really hard.
1: Dr. Yuse, are you getting input from classroom teachers in developing a safe return plan, and how things are going to look potentially in September?
2: We are. Um, it's not just us, but it's you know, I don't know of a district that hasn't been doing that. Um, you know, the task force that have been around the state with SED and and those kind of pieces, they've definitely been included. Um, you know, we have over a hundred people in our district that are on a reopening task force, reopening committee. And they're going to finish up this work this week because in the following week on the 31st, we have to have those, hands, have those plans handed in um, to, the, to the state. And then the following week, the governor will tell us what our numbers look like and uh, those kind of pieces. It's some of the regulations that are, that are making it difficult to decide whether we're opening fully or in a hybrid model. Um, the government hasn't said anything about the 180-day 180 180 day requirement. The 180-day requirement is for for funding. You have to be in school 180 days. Um, the student in school for 180 days. So, is that is that partially waived? Is that being allowed? So, you know, he really has um, the most control over the situation as he had all along.
0: Dr. Hughes, let me ask you. You talked about funding. How has uh, the budget or the lack of budget affected what teachers will be going back to school? Have there been layoffs within the district? Uh, how has this affected the employment situation at the school?
2: Um, you know, with the, with the state aid freezes happening this past year um, and the governor kind of sliding the CARES Act money that came from the feds and then taking that money away from us out of our foundation aid, um, and then having elections that we did, it cost us close to $50,000 just to have the election basically 45000 more than it normally costs us because of all the ballots and then the time we had to put out. And then, you know, we've been slowly putting away, you know, masks and gloves and hand sanitizer. We just ordered another 70 thermometers um, on top of it, you know, working with a, a couple of our local companies. We've been doing some telemedicine in the past with mobile primary care and we're working with them to, you know, with their technology to put, even put scanners near some of our doors so we can do those heat pieces. Luckily that's not gonna cost us much, but if we have to social distance on buses, and this is where it gets tricky. Department of Health says social distance as much as you can, if not wear a mask, including on buses. The state aid guidance says, social distance, and the way you read the guidance, it basically says you got to have less capacity on your buses. But well, then later in the package it says, well, if there's any conflicts between this guidance and other guidance, follow the Department of Health. You wrote 150 pages on this guidance that didn't really clarify a lot of this stuff. So we have to do those pieces that limits our ability to have, you know, you can't have 60 kids on a bus. So does that mean we do more bus runs that means more hours for our drivers it also means every single district can be looking for more drivers we don't have enough bus drivers as it is now it's not the job it was before where you know you had people work in the morning and and late in the afternoon and do other other things you know a lot of time it was farmers and such um at least for my community so you know the the, the cost is growing rapidly uh, we've been fo- we were focused on one-to-one learning for quite a while. I've only been here about two and a half years, and in my previous school districts, we got to one-to-one. We're almost there now, but we're waiting for 750 Chromebooks to come in, and it's from Dell, and they're on back order. But every other district's trying to do the same thing now. So the cost, um, I can't put a figure on it right now, but we're keeping track of it, and it's it seems to be growing um, on, on a weekly basis.
1: Uh, Dr. Hughes, I know Frontier Central is a, a large district. How many students are in uh, your population?
2: We have 4,700 across six buildings.
1: Wow! And have you had any concern or heard any concern among teachers uh, about going back to school uh, if they have some underlying health conditions? So what do you hear from teachers? I see there's a lot of talk on social media about their concern about their own health.
2: Yeah, um, that's that's one of the most difficult parts about this. So how do we balance the, the adult issues um, with the students? Um, Especially when it comes to health, if it was other issues, um, you know, kid, kid issues always take precedence in my world. Um, What's best for the kids and those kind of pieces, but balancing those others. um, I know we've had a couple, not teachers, but a couple of our support staff retire recently. Um, Maybe this from what I understand, um, coming back to work with students in the building, as such as maybe been the final push for them to decide to retire. Um, we hate to lose them, but, you know, I'm, they're worried about their health and I can understand that. So what precautions can we put in place to make these things, to make it happen? there are definitely our teachers, our staff. Um, I like to say our civil service staff even more so because they are a little bit older average population than our teaching population is. So, you know, how do you balance those out but then at the same time you have people in the community who are healthcare care workers, um, law enforcement, first responders that go well we can be back at work why can't you be so there's this there's this constant debate or arguments from either side about what to do so no matter what choice we make um, for parents for our staff or faculty, there's going to be quite a few that disagree. So it's really a lose-lose in an environment that none of us have ever experienced before.
0: Speaking of health, um, what is the procedure now for, when you're back in school, a kid who visits the nurse and has COVID-like symptoms? How will that be different or treated different than a usual kid going to the nurse?
2: Well, that's where um, trying to catch things beforehand. So one thing we're definitely going to be doing is we need our parents to check students before they head off to school for, for temperatures and things like that. And as somebody who's, who's had COVID himself, um, it came out of nowhere. You know, I, I was fine, no problems. And then all of a sudden took a nap and then bang, I had a temperature. So knowing that those kind of scenarios are going to happen or a parent might not check, you know, if the students are getting on our buses, most likely our bus driver is going to have a thermometer to scan them once they come on. And then a mask will have to be worn. We're looking at using other entrances besides the bus entrances, using a different entrance for any any kids who walk or being are dropped off by their parents. We'll have the scan there as well. If somebody does have symptoms, um, they're basically going to be isolated um, as best as possible. We're setting up, you know separate rooms to do so. So that way though, the the full population is not uh, exposed as much. Um, It's going to be a mask piece. So that debate, the number of parents on our, on our feedback, our Facebook, our social media, our our surveys that are, that have come back um, or even just, you know, chat while you're stopping the tops has been, you know, we want our kids fully back. Okay. There's a contingent that, like, well, it's not safe for my kids. They're not going to come back. So we want you to do virtual. We can't do all of it, Um, or they're going to homeschool them. And then in between, I want my kids back, but they're not going to wear a mask. So no matter what, there's this wide range. So separating the students once they come in to figure that out, it's really keeping as much spacing as possible so you lessen the chance of it it being spread. And our nurses, I'll give them credit. We have, um, from our mental director down, they are involved in all these development of guidelines for us and um, have been on the front lines throughout COVID. Why they have not been in school, they've been working um, on the front lines uh, dealing with the the, the pandemic.
1: Talking with Dr. Richard Hughes from the Frontier Central School District. And Dr. Hughes, you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation about hybrid possibilities. And if you do have to switch to some online learning, how do you accommodate students who perhaps don't have computers or internet access?
2: Well, I'm glad you said that Said that about the internet access piece and the, and the device issue. Um, I, I've been involved in some national and state committees and, and groups that have been talking about this for a very long time, um, about making sure we have equitable access. Um, it's no longer... That's becoming the great divide now. Whether it's rural communities uh, where I grew up, that because you know you're you're on you're on a back road somewhere, um, spectrum or whoever else hasn't run internet access out that way, or, or cable, um, and then other places it's you know especially in our suburban areas, it's it's the Wi-Fi access. So we went through and made sure our kids have whatever devices they need. We handed about 700 of them out. Um, so I think we're a pretty fortunate community from that aspect. Uh, we handed out about 40 Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, that's where the funding needs to occur, and even at the county level, the state level, they've talked about forever. Let's make the internet and make all these pieces, you know, accessible to to everyone. This could have been done years ago, and some of the things I'm seeing now that we're have to rush an education because of this pandemic piece could have been tackled because there were so many people that had the foresight. They didn't know a pandemic was coming, but they knew this is an issue that that's going to hold back learning for, for many kids and, and, and hold back businesses because of, you know, the speed of the internet and things like that. It's, it's a way of life now. We can't avoid it. So um, Mm -hmm. there's definitely a concern there for the equity piece. If we do go hybrid, um you know say one model has kids coming in school two days one week and the three days of the next week where they do online learning the other days online learning doesn't have to be sit and get like you would if you're sitting in a classroom it can be project based it can be follow through of of the material you've gotten it could be pre pre learning the material um back in my day we would read the textbook um and then go to class um so the stuff that we learned in the textbook, we can apply directly right in class. Um, those are the challenges we're going to be facing. But the Internet access, it, it, that's my greatest concern. Um, and then parents trying to balance all this. It's, I have four little ones myself. Unfortunately, my wife uh, has been able to stay with them since they have been growing up. And balancing the four of them to get them to learn online. Um, if she had to balance a job at the same time, uh, it, it's it's incredible what some parents are doing during all this.
0: It, building off of that, Dr. Hughes, what are some things when it comes to virtual learning that you learned uh, during the last semester when you were just thrown into having to do virtual learning starting in March? What are some things you, you learned and what are the benefits of starting the year uh, doing virtual learning than just throwing the students into it halfway through the school season?
2: Well, I mean, the the piece of the virtual, the distance learning, blended learning, whatever we want to call it, um, the the really difference comes you can't treat it like a student was in the classroom. Um, For some students, the self-motivation that they have is they're just going to go, 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 and they're not going to have a problem with it. Um, The biggest issue is knowing where a student is at any given time now if i'm in a classroom i used to be a high school science teacher so if i was talking about the periodic table or something like that i can see the kids in front of me and i can see the reaction on their face when i ask a question you know they're they're reading their mannerisms tells me if they got it or not well there's there's things you know doing formative assessments checking that understanding it's not a graded assessment but checking that understanding that's the most crucial piece during this virtual learning. It's not giving them a quiz. It's not giving them a, a digital sheet that would have been a, would have been a handout um, otherwise. It's making sure they're learning and how they're learning and what they're not learning and how do you reteach that or how do you help them learn that material um, when not. So it's really taking that to a whole different level, because you can't rely on that face-to-face um, interaction to do so. So having those kind of measurements to, to make sure a student is learning and growing and uh, not plateauing, that's, that's the hardest piece. And I think with the timing, um, with us having some more planning involved, you know, it's allow the teachers, you know, say if, if I'm a, I'm a fourth-grade teacher, and instead of each fourth-grade teacher in, in one of our buildings focus on just their kids, what they can do is they can break up the work um, I, we have one of our teachers in fifth grade has was started doing um, blended learning, flipped learning, using math videos that he created um, before all this happened. Well, those students in, in the classes that he has, he, they are able to go through their fifth grade material as fast as they can. When they can't master a piece of it through the assessments they measure, he works with them to figure it out. We had kids by mid year last year that were already in the sixth grade math because they can go as fast as they want. But the kids who need more time than that teacher can work with. So, divvying up the work, um, I think, is key to it because not every teacher can be a master of everything, especially in this new era of, of the digital piece. You know, we've been working, I've been working in the digital kind of aspect for a while, and it, it's about making the learning personal to that student. We just can't take um, a factory approach to all this and say, well, every kid's going to be here by this time. Every kid's going to be here by this time. It's up to them to learn it. Us as educators have to measure and figure out if they're getting it. And if they're not getting it, we need to reteach it or teach it a different way so they get it. And in the virtual environment, it's very difficult to do so unless you have a um, greater idea of how to use assessments in that virtual environment.
1: I want to ask you about the meal program. I understand that you offer breakfast and lunch through August 14th. Has that been impacted at all with the COVID-19 crisis?
2: Um, I think we've seen more numbers. Um, just like during our closing from March until the end of the school year, You know, we served 212,000 meals, um, which you know, it sounds like a big number, but then you take into account other districts that may have larger numbers than us. Um, of students and the number of meals we served were not what we expected. We didn't expect to serve that many meals. Um, so we have a summer feeding program we've had every summer. Um, the numbers are higher. Um, I think that's part of the economy. I think that's part of people knowing about it and taking advantage of it, which is a good thing. And then whatever happens when we start them since t- September, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll make sure to meet the needs of our, our, our students.
0: And Doctor and Hughes, just one more thing. You mentioned that you had COVID. How are you feeling post-COVID? Well, I had it.
2: <laughs> I had no clue, and then uh, it was into March uh, through uh, the first week of April, and it was sequestered in my home, um, in our bedroom, and um, it, it's it's a it's a fever like no other, and it's you know the aches and pains and the loss of uh, taste and smell. Um, I'm very fortunate that it was, uh, you know, I had a had a mild case of it compared to others, but I can see where there was one night that the fever was up and you worry about, is, is this, do I need to go to the hospital? Is this going to get worse? Um, I didn't have the breathing issues uh, that many have experienced, so I consider myself fortunate, and my family didn't get it. So um, it's a very real thing, and I uh, just want people to, you know, Take whatever precautions you can, please, so that we can get back to school in September.
0: Well, happy to hear that you're feeling better, Dr. Richard Hughes, and I'm sure we'll be talking uh, in the future. You have a great day, and thanks for joining us. You too, thank you. Dr. Richard Hughes from the Frontier Schools, the superintendent of the Frontier Schools, talking about what we could be seeing uh, come September. One thing we do know kids will be learning, just how they'll be learning, well, Wait and see. It's just like everything with COVID. It could change at eleven. It could change in two minutes. Coming up at eleven, we have Professor Peter Yakabuchi to talk about the Supreme Court, to talk about some of the big cases that we saw uh, decided in the last few weeks, and also about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. All of that and more. It's hardline here on News Radio nine thirty W B E N.